but it was one of the most humbling experiences when I was teaching. I used to be a teacher, and there was this kid who was just, you know, annoying me so much and, and getting into trouble, and I just shouted at him in class, in the middle of class, yeah. in my in my most, I guess, horrible moments. And I remember him just standing there frozen in tears. And I told him, get out of the room. And he got out of the room. And that evening, I was wrecked with guilt. Mm. I was like, I know he did the wrong thing, mm. but I know I've also failed him as a human being. What do I do tomorrow morning? Mm. So, hey there, welcome to the first podcast of Espresso and Earl Grey. I'm Sam, <laughs> and with me is Dr. Sam Chan as well. So we're both Sam. Yeah, we're both Sam. We're both third culture, well, yep. whatever. Were you born in... No, born Hong Kong, but yeah, came to Australia as a baby. Kong. No way! Yeah, yeah. We're just two Sams riffing about life's questions, seeing the world through different eyes, and hopefully, maybe, we'll land on something profound. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about failure, how we experience it, how we let it control us sometimes, and how we can learn from it. And hopefully this podcast won't be a failure. Dr. Sam, who are you? What do you do? Your interests? Wow. So I'm Asian, born in Hong Kong, grew up in Australia. My interests were I played a lot of rugby, loved it lived the Asian dream, studied medicine, became yep. a doctor. But very un-Asian playing rugby. Yes, yeah. yeah. I went to Highgate Primary in Adelaide, Campbelltown Primary in Campbelltown, yeah. but then a private school, Trinity Grammar School in Somerville, right. where back then rugby was compulsory, yeah, mandatory. Yeah. Yep. You can so only get out of it if you had a note from your doctor. And somehow every Asian kid managed to get a note from their doctor <laughs> saying that they couldn't play rugby. But I love rugby. And how many concussions have you had? I have had so many. <laughs> like, over 40, probably. Yeah. I have two or three bad ones per season. Yeah. And probably one or two mini ones in a game. So the mini ones in a game are way I can't remember the last five minutes. But I soon work out which half we're in and which direction we're running. <laughs> but the major ones are where I can't remember the game. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah. no recollection of the game. <laughs> it got oh so bad goodness. by the end, my wife would have to drive me to games because I couldn't guarantee I could find my car after a game and get myself home. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Where I went to Sydney High, oh, yeah. um, I played volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> the complete opposite would of have been contact Every sport. Asian, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And had a very academic, but uh, loved woodwork. Um, I tr still try to do woodwork here and there, so I do a lot of lathing and bowl turning. You and, lived the uh, Asian dream. Sydney High, I did High, Sydney volleyball. High, and then I went to do um, primary education. Wow. Which is not an Asian dream, but then my parents were not very Asian. They just mm. didn't mind what, um, what I did. Sam's got his espresso and I've got my Earl Grey. So that's going to be our shtick whenever we do this. Yeah. I'm sipping on a single origin espresso. Espresso, and I've got my flat white turned into an Earl Grey. Wow. Um, so let's jump into it. Every time I sense failure is coming, I get that creeping feeling up my spine. You know, that, that kind of, the pit in the stomach. 
What do you feel when you feel like there's a something coming that you've made a huge mistake? Ah, you know, you, physiologically, the adrenaline overload, you, you start shaking uncontrollably. Uh, you, you can actually get a funny taste in your mouth and your lips tingle. I, I get it whenever I think I've gone too fast and I've gone past a radar trap yes. and I see the flashing lights and I think the policeman's about to get me. I actually get that whole feeling as I'm driving the car. Yeah. One of my favourite quotes. Yep. Christopher Nolan, mm -hmm. Batman Begins. Yeah. Alfred is talking to young Mr. Wayne. Why do we fall, sir? So that we can learn how to pick ourselves up again. Do you think that's right? Well, it's interesting that entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs, and people like Google, they have this idea that you have to fail 20 times for every success. Yes. So they, they deliberately give their employees like 20% of their week off yeah. where they, they're free to fail. Just yeah, try yeah, something yeah. and yeah. fail yeah. at it. And yeah. it's how they understand um, education now. Yes. So the education in our day was, you know, if you had a maths test and you got five questions wrong, you'd see big red crosses yes. yeah. that said, you got this wrong. So it was I a remember, threat. Um, when I was in year 11, I did a test and I could not imagine, I could, I could not imagine how many zeros I actually got yeah. in that test. I got, and it was probably in red ink, wasn't it? Was it was in red ink as well. I got 6.5 out of 120 marks. That's right. Um, that was a huge failure. Whereas education theory now says don't use red ink, use blue or green, a calming colour, mm. and you didn't get them wrong, but this is where you can improve now. Yep. So it's, rather than a threat, yes. it's an opportunity for you yeah. now to excel and improve. Yep. And you and I, back in our day, it was the three R's of education, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. Yep. Yep. They talk about the C's of yeah, yeah, yeah. education. Is it collaboration, communication, right. yeah, yeah. cooperation? Yeah. So it's all about teaching children resilience. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. can you get back up? Yeah, and yeah, so I, yeah. I actually totally agree with that. Yeah. And and the fear of failure is what shuts people down. Yeah. So I teach my kids, it's great that you fail because now that's an opportunity for you to excel. Yeah. I, I, I think it was, it's rumoured that Thomas Edison failed a thousand times. Uh, the inventor of the light bulb failed a thousand times to create the light bulb before actually creating one. And then a reporter said to him, oh, how does it feel um, having failed a thousand times? And he said, well, it wasn't a failure of a thousand times, it just took a thousand steps to get to the light bulb. I guess it's a posture that we take towards failure, isn't it? Yeah. Because failure... Welcome it, embrace it. I call it, you need a first pancake. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. you know, I have a Saturday morning ritual where I cook pancakes for my boys, and the joke is the first pancake's not going to be any good, mm. but there has to be a first pancake, there mm. has to be a dud that sets, you, sets up the second, third, fourth pancake. So mm. I always say, who wants the first pancake? Because no one wants the first pancake. But whatever you do, you gotta get, you gotta have a first pancake. Yeah, yeah. So I like I'm a public speaker, yeah. and you know, I give the same talk <clears throat> in a variety of places. So I often joke, I have to get the first talk to my church, and I, my church gets my first pancakes, and mm. they, they, they get my duds, and they must wonder, why does someone, why do people invite this guy to give talks? It's terrible. And yes, I am, because you're getting my first pancakes. But I welcome it. I embrace that. Yeah. Um, what a negative attitude towards failure would be saying, 
because I have failed, I am a failure, mm. right? I kind of felt that when I was going through my master's in divinity, um, when I was studying something that religion, my religion, I was studying something that was really close to my heart, my spirituality, my life was spent in thinking about Christianity. And now I'm being marked on what I think about my Christianity and my faith. And it just felt like there was a slight shift yeah. there that because I am not getting a good mark for it and because spirituality is so close to my heart, yeah. I am a failure. Yep. Any thoughts? Well, it's all according to the marking grid, you see. So you got to... It's hard to do, as you say, yeah. it's hard to separate identity from performance and yeah. even performance from assessment. Yeah. And you just got to have that grid where I just got to be the best I can be, not the mm. best there is. And so, for example, you know, in, in rugby, I, I had a lot of fun. Uh, in my team, I was pretty good. I was the best I could be. And in my team, I was one of the best players. Mm. But had it been volleyball, <laughs> I would have been terrible, <laughs> but I would have been okay with that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a different game. Yeah. It's a different set of rules. It's a different yeah. assessment. So my identity has to be divorced from my performance in yeah. volleyball. And volleyball is so arbitrary. And I often think how unfair and arbitrary life is, because the powers that be once determined if you do good at maths, you're intelligent. But they don't say if you do did good in say woodwork. Yeah. you're highly intelligent nice. so it's so arbitrary that they choose maths rather than yeah. woodwork yeah and and you can get into law and medicine based on your maths marks yeah. but not your woodwork marks yeah, but yeah. it's so arbitrary why and why choose rugby not volleyball why yeah. apples are not oranges so then at that moment i've got to be at peace with well this is just how yeah. this is a social construct it's it's an external social construct and it says actually nothing about me and my own individual worth so how do you how do you get from feeling I am a failure to I have failed? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I... You've got to get... Alain de Botton has got this amazing book yep. where he deconstructs our view of success. Oh, so the whole point yeah. is we've built success on a meritocracy. Yeah. So we yeah, have yeah, earned yeah. our success. And then the negative flip side is when you don't succeed, oh, you didn't work hard enough because yeah. it's a meritocracy. Yeah. And that's a whole problem with the high school and college graduation commencement speeches. You can be what you want to be, you know, chase your dreams. So when you don't find happiness or success, you blame yourself because the speech has said you can do whatever mm. you want. And when you can't mm. do whatever you want, you think, well, I must be the one at fault here. Yeah. So the flip side is you're to blame. But if we remove meritocracy and say, you know, we just got to control what we can control, do the best that we can do, but there's so much more to life that we can't control. And so that's not on me. So part of that means when I do succeed, I need to be humble. Because let's face it, there were factors I didn't control. I couldn't choose my parents, couldn't con choose what country I grew up in, couldn't choose the school I got sent to. But that, the flip side then is when I do fail, I can be secure that this actually doesn't say that much about me. Often things just didn't go my way. Maybe my health failed, maybe the economy failed, maybe I need to look after my parents at this critical moment. So they're factors out of our control. Mm. And I think you've picked up something really important, humility. I think sometimes in society we can 
often mistake humility as putting ourselves down. Whereas I think true humility is having an honest assessment of ourselves. Because so much of the time, I, when I went through high school, I wanted to get to first grade volleyball. Yeah. And it got to a stage where I realised I'm just not good enough. Yeah. And that was actually quite a humble moment. And I was, I had second grade volleyball on yeah. my um, blazer for like four or five years or something, um, which is very humiliating. Uh, but at the same time, I've got to realise that's it. Yeah. That's all I can get to. And having to say that's okay and swallow that pill and still, I guess, celebrating that that's okay. Yeah, so it's humble, liberating and sustainable. Yeah. See, very helpful is um, his name... Uh, Tom... Just can't remember his name. Tom something, if Aristotle ran General Motors. He talks about the difference between individual excellence and competitive excellence. So individual excellence is basically you just be the best you can be. So it's in absolute terms. But competitive excellence is where does this rank on the bell curve compared yeah. to other people? Mm. And he says we should just concentrate on individual rather than competitive excellence. And the example I give is I once ran the Chicago Marathon and I did a time of, say, four hours. And Chicago Marathon is 50,000 runners and that put me in the middle of the bell curve. So I was average and I felt fantastic. But then I ran the Sydney Marathon a long time ago before it was popular. I still ran four hours, but there were only 2,000 runners and they were all elite high-end runners. So I was right down the back. I was like the last percentile. So same time, so same absolute individual excellence, but in terms of competitive excellence, in Chicago I was 50, percentile in Sydney I was the bottom one percent percentile so I yeah. felt like a failure even though it was the same performance so what we need to know is okay in absolute terms I'm okay and I and I don't need to judge myself on the bell curve because sooner or later there'll be a bell curve big enough where I'm always going to be on the back half of the bell curve and I need to be okay with that because even if you made the first grade volleyball side in Sydney high where does that put you in the state? Yeah. Where does that put you in Australia? Yeah. Where does that put you in the world? So yeah. sooner or later there'll be a bell curve where you fall off the back end. Yeah. It seems like, uh, as we're talking more about it, that there needs to be a bit... To, to confront failure, we need to be satisfied. We need to be humble. But at the same time, yeah, maybe it's an optimistic attitude to life that um, it seems you're a very optimistic person because you, you, you went to the very last percentile of the Sydney race and still see yourself as, you still run, right? Yeah, because my, I, and I get slower and slower. Like my yeah, time's yeah. getting worse and worse. Yeah. And just knowing my identity is not bound out in my performance. Yeah. So my identity is secure. I perform in the situations that I'm in uh, just to excel and to have fun basically yeah. there, there's a fun in being creative and excelling yeah. but knowing that my identity and self-worth is not based in the assessment of my performance mm. you know as long as I did the best I can 
You're listening to Espresso and Earl Grey with the two Sams, and we're talking about failure and how it affects our lives. And I guess if, if we kept living with an identity that is based on performance... You burn our, out. Yeah, we burn out, right? Because you, You'd be proud insecure and you burn out you'll be threatened by the success of others yeah and you'll always have a chip on your shoulder and you see everyone as a threat yeah and especially as you get older as your as your body deteriorates as as your as your mind doesn't work as quick as it it did before it just becomes more and more depressing in life doesn't it yeah if your identity is bound up in your performance fun fact did you know that an irrational phobia of failure is called... There's, there's actually a name for it. It's called atikiphobia, coming from the Greek atikis, which is... I don't know either. I had to look it up. Which means unfortunate and phobos, coming from fear. Or the other one, which is really fun to say, is um, kakorophobic. Kakor- which come from kakos. Which means something bad. Bad. Um, and rapto, which means to sow. Okay. So it's a fear of evil sown or fear Ooh. of bad sown. Now, we don't, not all of us has an, have an irrational fear of failure, but often a fear of failure leads us to perfectionism. Now, I just want to ask you this, because you're a surgical assistant and you've been a doctor in your life and where perfection, where, you know, where you need to get things just right. There is precision that's needed. But is there a problem with perfectionism? Is there a difference between getting things just right and is there a a difference between that and perfectionism? Yeah, you spoke to the right person because you've got to understand how I'm wired. I'm a firstborn Asian son, mm. high achiever. So I had, to, I had to do medicine. It couldn't be any other subject. It had to be Sydney Uni because that was where you needed the highest marks to get into. And then I tried to specialise. It had to be surgery. had to be orthopaedic surgery. So, you know, there's a whole hierarchy. When I went distance running... It couldn't just be the city to surf, couldn't just be a half marathon, it had to be a marathon. And it couldn't be just a marathon in the suburbs, it had to be the Chicago Marathon, the Sydney Marathon. So I am wired that way, but it's unsustainable. And it's interesting, I, I've had one or two burnouts in my life. So now, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and now wisdom, I realise, okay, being wired that way is unsustainable. And then you think, well, why am I such a high achiever? And somewhere along the line, you think, okay, this is where my status, my security, my self-worth and my honour is really, really bound. Mm. And this thing you can finally let go of that and say, no, my status, my self-worth mm. is not bound in that. I, I, can, I can now let that go. What do you mean by honour? See, coming from Asian cultures, it's interesting. My parents, because my brother and I both ended up in medicine, it's just elevated my parents' status amongst their peers. And they, they get asked to run seminars on parenting because somehow they're perceived as parent experts because two of yeah, their kids yeah. got into medicine. <laughs> so parents somehow it's just elevated. It's, it's, it's honoured my parents. It's mm. provided, you know, 
Westerners talk about, I guess, self-worth, but Asians talk about honour, and the opposite of honour is shame. And, uh, yeah. So I, I spared my parents of shame. Yeah, yeah. Did you... Yeah. So what's, what's the difference between getting things right and perfectionism? I think getting things right says, I'm doing the best I can with what I'm given. And, yeah. and, and, and sometimes near enough is good enough. Yeah. But perfectionism is where I'm worried I'm going to be judged on this. Yeah. So I'm doing this now for how it's going to be perceived and received by other people. Yeah. Whereas doing things well, it's I'm, I'm going to make the best I yeah. can with what I'm given. Yeah, I remember when I was, I was uh, doing a particular project and um, it was a design project at school and I was... It was, it was, I think it was perfectionism there working because I was ducks of uh, design and technology at school for three, four years in a row and I needed to get band six. And so I worked pretty much like nine in the morning to 12 at night trying to get the right thing, trying to get... And it wasn't sustainable either. And it's, but sometimes it's just things that are so dear to you that you want others to see that you are good at it that you want to spend so much time on it what's a healthy way of of how much time to spend on a particular thing you reckon oh the goldilocks principle <laughs> <laughs> not too much not too little yeah well you know medicine we have this saying it's very helpful the the enemy of good is better because it's an endless piece of string you can always make something better yeah. So you, then you're chasing a never-ending thing. Yeah. In the end, you just got to be happy enough with good enough really is good enough. Yeah. And it goes back to um, here I'm going to throw in philosophy in big words. Go but, you know, uh, Western epistemology, Descartes, I think, therefore yeah. I am. So he's trying to found all human knowledge on 100% certainty. But now we realise there never is 100% certainty. And just living with adequate certainty is good enough. And if my product is good enough, it's good enough. And, and just be willing, willing to let it go. Otherwise, diminishing returns. It's like the $1,000 bottle of wine is not 100 times better than the $10 bottle of wine. Yeah. So it's diminishing yeah, returns. Yeah. So you can put in 1,000 more hours on this, but it's not going to be 100 times better. So there, there so will be a, diminishing returns. Yeah, so it's a matter of wisdom, letting go yeah, yeah. and going, hey, with this project, I've got 100 hours yeah. and I'm only going to spend 100 hours on it. What if we'd get judged? <laughs> How do we face criticism? Because it seems like in our world now, especially in the news today and in certain countries, it's that you fail, you don't do the best, you're fired. You know, failure yeah. is not an option. Yeah. What if we get criticised? What if we get fired? What's the, what's the posture to take there? Well, see, this is very raw for me because I'm also an author and so my books get put online and they get reviewed. You know, some people get one star, some people get five stars and every now and then you glance at what people say and people can say some harsh things and people can say some wonderful things and, and you just got to be able to walk away and say, you know what, you know, that, that's great, that's their opinion. You know, they loved it, they hated it. But in the end, my self-worth is not based on that five or one star rating. So just being very, just 
clear on who is my judge. So it's very good you ask. I'm a dad, I'm a doctor, I'm a theologian, so I'll put my Christian hat on right now. Basically, you know, there's only three, maybe four sets of people who can judge us. So our parents and family can judge us, and that's the Asian culture, shame and honour. So if we fail them, we shame them. What you mean by them. judge? Is that critique, is that critique? assess you, yeah. say whether you're a failure or whether you're a success. So in your fa- parents' eyes, they can judge you, say you're a success, all right? Uh, it could be your friends and peers, and that's very important in tribal and, and Western cultures. We try to say, hey, I'm my own individual, but no, really, we, we very much depend on the likes of our peers, or it could be just myself. You know, in the end, I am my own judge. But here's the problem, if being my own judge, I'm also a very harsh critic, and I'm the last person to forgive myself. And I think mm. that's why there's so much stress and anxiety, because there's actually no forgiveness right now. So our families don't forgive us, our tribes don't forgive us, instead they publicly shame us, and then we ourselves don't forgive ourselves. But the Christian option is, says, you know, there's a God who loves you just the way you are. You're in his image. Uh, your status has nothing to do with your performance. And if you can just step by and say, you know what? I'm a child of God. I'm in the image of God. I'm loved. My status doesn't depend on my performance. Uh, it just depends on being a child of God. And then you can just step away from the judgment of other people and just say, hey, what God has given me is a gift. I'm a steward of it. I'll just do the best I can with what God has given me. Yeah, and that really reminds me, as I work with people with disability, mm-hmm. is that in, in a culture that is a meritocracy, yeah. where you are judged by what you can input and what you can output and what you can do, yeah. I work with um, and I serve and I'm friends with people who, in, that eye, in those eyes could be deemed as failures, could be very much deemed as people with very little worth because money is poured into them rather than them providing money into society. Mm. But at the same time, if we have a theological approach to things, then it it, it sees that each of these people are treasured and loved by God, that there is a worth in them. And that we as human beings, as fellow human beings, and I guess it's that, it's that what Christians say, the image of God. All of us who are made equally in the image of God can recognise in someone who may just spend their whole lives in, um, on a bed mm. um, as a fellow human being, as a relational human being who we can befriend, who we can love, who has worth. I just want to ask you a personal question as a father. Yeah. Have you failed your children? And what is that like? I think one of the biggest, I don't have children, but it was one of the most humbling experiences when I was teaching, I used to be a teacher, and there was this kid who was just, you know, annoying me so much and, and getting into trouble. And I just shouted at him in class, in the middle of class, yeah. in, my, in my most, I guess, horrible moments. And I remember him just standing there frozen in tears. And I told him, get out of the room. And he got out of the room. And 
that evening, I was wrecked with guilt. Mm. I was like, I know he did the wrong thing, mm. but I know I've also failed him as a human being. What do I do tomorrow morning? Mm. And the next day, he came up to me and, you know, I, I told him, I, I gave him a, a warning card and he came up to me really, oh, really chummy and trying to revert that card. But I said, I took him aside and I said, I'm sorry, I, I can't go back against my word. You know you did something wrong. But then I knew deep down in my heart I needed to apologise. So I said, I'm really, really sorry. I should not have shouted at you. But that was one of the hardest things to come out of my mouth, to actually admit that. As a father, have you experienced moments where you've disappointed your children? And how do you process that? I know every parent... In, in, see, what's fascinating out there right now is this parents under so much stress there's so many books on parenting i've been to so many seminars jennifer senior's got this amazing book called all joy but no fun the paradox of modern parenthood it's been a new york times bestseller and i think she articulates it best just the stress and the anxiety of parenting i myself think you know in a world where there's no god anymore our children become our gods and they they become our proxy idols almost so their successes become our successes mm. their failures become our failures compound on top of that most parents make this pact with themselves that they will be the perfect parent and they will never make the same mistakes mm. their own parents made so yeah. they're just trying to judge themselves against yeah. the, you know how they were parented and then so when your kids aren't as amazing as you thought they were going to be and that's a harsh wake-up call for most people so we're talking about success here well, talk about success for children. Suddenly, your, your kid's not the smartest in maths. Your kid's not the best in football. And you catch yourself shouting at your kid when you promise you would never shout mm. at your kid. Uh, and so every parent out there feels like a failure. And, and, and there's no one to forgive them because their kids won't forgive them and yeah. they can't forgive themselves. And again, this is where it's so important that there's a God who says, you're not meant to be perfect. It's okay not to be perfect. And God will forgive you. And I think for me, because I, I do come from this secure starting point that I'm not meant to be uh, perfect. It's okay to be... And what, what's the definition of a perfect parent? In then, parent children just need two things, to know they're loved and know that they're safe. And so all I used to do as a parent was just tell my kids while they're young, I love you, your mother loves you, and you're safe. I, that's all I used to do. I didn't promise them the world. I just said, you're loved and you're safe. And, then, and I think, and I used to tell them, and you know, I'm not the perfect dad. One day you're gonna find out, you know, you know, I'm not the biggest, I'm not the strongest, I'm the smartest, I'm not the best. So you're gonna, and you're gonna be devastated. So I need to prepare you for that. So they're already, I think, beginning from a posture of weakness and brokenness. Uh, and being okay with that, beginning already knowing that um, it's God who's perfect, I don't have to be perfect, and that children only need to know that they're loved and safe and they don't even have to perform for me. I think that was how I parented. So I'm actually, I, because of that, I'm not quite sure there is a moment where, you know, I felt really, really guilty afterwards, but maybe there one or two times I might have shouted, 
So then I would then say to the kid, hey, I'm really sorry. I, I, I promised myself I would never do that. I've let myself down. I'm sorry. These are the reasons why I might have done it, but that doesn't excuse it. Will you forgive me? And did they forgive you? Yeah. It's a, it's a humbling moment yeah. to ask. And if we don't say sorry to them, then how do we expect them to say sorry to us? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's right. And I wonder whether forgiveness and saying sorry can be something that we flesh out in another podcast yeah. because it's so important yeah. um, to think through. But now our espresso and Earl Grey's are finished and um, our cups are dry. Um, I want to finish with one final question. Sure. Tell us a story of when someone's failed you and you've forgiven them. Tell a story of when you've failed someone mm. and they've forgiven you. Wow. I guess... You know, it's so weird. It's just, it's hard because people will work out who I'm talking about. That's yeah, a, I'll, I'll mm. share a story. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I, there was a huge relational tension between me and one of my best friends. Mm. And things just split. Yeah. And, um, and I refused to talk to him. And he kept reaching out. Yeah. And I just, I just stopped. Um, but then... A period of time after I, I, I went to him and we just chatted things through and said sorry and he said you know every time uh, how you dealt with failure and defeat is you run away but how I def- how I deal with relational failure and defeat is I run closer mm. because that's that's what God does and so I think I learned so much from that mm. and and the forgiveness that he gave to me was such a, I guess, a parable of God's forgiveness, mm. of always running closer uh, to someone uh, when, they fa- when his children fail. Mm. Well, I had a guy ring me up and say, hey, let's catch up. And I thought, oh, that's nice. We're going to catch up. We haven't seen each other for a while. But when he caught up, he, he said he himself was in the process of deliberately contacting people he, he thought he had failed and now he wanted some sort of reconciliation and forgiveness. So then he articulated where he thought he had failed me. And, you know, up until then I thought he hadn't failed me and we were at peace and things were okay. But then when he articulated it, I thought, you know what, he is so right. You know, there has been an elephant in the room, you know, there has been a barrier between us, Mm. uh, unconscious, but now he's made it explicit. And then because he expressed the failure, described it, articulated it, asked for forgiveness, we've been great friends ever since. So people describe it to me, it's a whole peacemaking thing. You can peace break or you can peace fake, which is what I guess us Asians who are yeah. conflict averse yeah. Yeah, yeah, tend yeah, to yeah, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you, we need to peace make where we actually go to the person, articulate failures, broken relationships and, and seek peace. Yeah.
Well, thank you so much for your time, Sam, and I'm looking forward to another cup of espresso and Earl Grey with you. And we've just been talking about failure, and maybe next next time we'll talk about peacemaking and forgiveness. We hope that you've got something encouraging out of this, something that you've learnt, or maybe, just maybe, we've said something profound. And hopefully, fingers crossed, this wasn't a failure. We really hope to uh, have you listening to us next time and we hope to see you then.